This is the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church Reno, we love God, love others, and make a difference. For more information, visit lifechurchreno.com. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message impacts you. Well, hey, it's great to see you today. I was out last week with a little touch of the COVID and uh, saw a terrifying article a while back that said that the average person loses seven IQ points after having COVID. And I don't know about you, but I don't have seven points to spare. And, and then I get terrified at the prospect of like our whole world suddenly being 7% dumber. I don't think we can do that. And, and so uh, anyway, hey, as we uh, talk about these baptisms coming up, I do wanna give a shout out. So next Sunday, we'll be having baptisms in both services If you've made the choice to follow Jesus, if you've come to a spot where you've trusted what Jesus has done in your place, dying on the cross for your sins, rising from the dead, if you've made the choice to live your life as a follower of Jesus, giving Jesus the steering wheel of your life, really your next step is to get baptized. One of Jesus' final words to us, but before he ascended to heaven, he said, go and make disciples, go and make followers of me and baptize them, dunk them, plunge them, immerse them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then a few short weeks later, the Apostle Peter's preaching on this day that becomes known as the day of Pentecost. There's thousands of people there. Peter's preaching. The Holy Spirit of God falls in power. And then people begin literally begging to give their lives to Jesus. They start saying, what must we do to be saved? Then Peter says, repent Literally do a a 180, no longer going the direction you're going, living for yourself, but turn from your sin and follow Jesus. He says, repent and let each one of you be baptized. And so if you've made the choice to follow Jesus, your really first step of obedience is to go public with getting baptized. And you can sign up at the website or at the church center app, and then we do have a class, like it said, right after this service. If you have an elementary age child who might be uh, interested in baptism, we have a class for you to attend with that child right after the service upstairs in Kids Life. Today we're wrapping up the series we've called Train. We've been talking about these spiritual habits, these disciplines, if you will, uh, these practices for us to grow in godliness. We looked at a verse week one about talking about training ourselves for godliness. And so we're going to wrap up this series today. And really, I want to talk to you about three practices that are very closely connected to one another. And, and they really all have this theme of slowing down. They really are, are really talking about what is it like for us to train ourselves in slowing down. If you have your Bibles, go over to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And, and, and here's really my heart for you today. I, I really believe that, that two of the greatest risks for all of us living in 2022 in America, that two of the greatest risks to our souls, to our relationships with one another, most importantly, our relationship with God, that these two great risks are are these risks of hurry and distraction. In Luke chapter 10, we see a story that if you've been in church your whole life, you've no doubt heard it before. It's this moment, Luke 10, verse 38. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. 
She came to him and said, Lord, why don't you care that my sister's left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. So Jesus comes in the house. Mary sits down and just wants to hang out with Jesus. Martha is making dinner and she's cleaning the house and she's doing all of these things. And she goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, Martha won't even, get, won't, Martha won't even make the iced tea. Jesus, make, Mar make Martha, make, make Mary, Mary won't even make the iced tea. Make Mary do something. And then Jesus says, Martha, you are distracted. You are in a hurry. You're running around trying to do all this stuff, but Mary has chosen the one thing. He says, Martha, he says, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary hasn't chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. We see Martha is in this moment of hurry and distraction and missing out on this one thing Jesus talks about. And I really believe that for the time in which we live and the place in which we live, that this hurry thing and distraction are, are very risky for our souls. Dallas Willard said it this way. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. The pastor in Portland, John Mark Comer, took that phrase from Dallas Willard, where, where Dallas Willard says you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. John Mark Comer wrote a whole, whole book on the topic called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's a great little read, by the way. I'd encourage you to read it, but, but here's how he says it. He says, to restate, love joy, and peace are at the heart of all Jesus is trying to grow in the soil of your life. And all three are incompatible with hurry. So, so Paul tells us that the, what does it look like when the Holy Spirit is having his way in your life? It looks like you, were, you become more like Jesus. The character of Jesus is growing in your life. And so when he describes that, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. That's the first three. But I don't know about you. But, but there is this inverse relationship where, where, where the more I'm in a hurry, then I have a little bit less love coming out of me and a little bit less joy coming out of me, a little bit less peace. Anybody have the experience today where you're like in a hurry to get to church on time? Because it matters. And then you've actually physically felt your love for your family decreasing. And you're like, there's that one person in your family that always makes y'all late everywhere, and, you're, and your joy towards them is decreasing. And then you're like mad and anxious about the fact that now you have to speed and cuss the whole way to church <laughs> because of them. There is this inverse relationship between hurry and, and these things that really mark the character of Jesus in our life, but, but we live lives of hurry. And, and so this hurry thing and this distraction thing, that we, there's never, we, I think we live in a time where people have never been more distracted. And we see it, have you had that experience where like you're at a restaurant and you decide that you're gonna set your phone down. And then you look around and the restaurant is filled with people eating together, but by being together, they're just all staring at their phones at the same table. And that this, the, the phone, which has so much upside, but there's also this constant distraction. And we all know it's dangerous to text while driving, but now there's actually increasing studies on the dangers of just looking at your phone while you're walking. People are, you can find all kinds of stuff on the internet about this, like, where people are just kind of going through life, looking at their phone, looking at their phone, looking at their phone. Grand Canyon's right here, looking at their phone, looking at the phone, and then they just walk into the Grand Canyon. 
True story. It's terrible. A funnier version where people don't die is that there's this video, <laughs> this video where there's this lady at the mall just like looking at her phone, walking, looking at her phone, walking, looking at her phone, walking. There's this big giant fountain right here. Looking at her phone, looking at her phone, and then she like does this flip into this fountain. And then jumps up, kind of looks around to see if anyone saw her. And then just like walks away. But it's this picture of these distracted lives that we live that I, I believe put us at incredible risk spiritually, incredible risk relationally. And, and so these practices I want to talk to you about today are, are, are really spiritual habits that are designed to go against these risks that we face, this risk of hurry, this risk of distraction. The, these habits are, are really related. It's the habit of, of silence and solitude. Sometimes these are talked about as two practices. Sometimes they're talked about as one that kind of is packaged together. Silence Silence, solitude, and Sabbath, but what these three practices all have in common is they exist for the purpose of slowing us down, doing away with distractions that we might, might have room in our lives to enjoy God's activity and to hear his voice. See, for, for most of us, silence, solitude, and Sabbath are our greatest need and greatest challenge. I don't know about you, this stuff's hard for me. This stuff is the combination of being born with ADHD, having a bunch of kids at home, having a lot going on, my phone always going off, like that whole idea of like just slowing down, living without distraction, it's hard for me. And, but what are we even talking about? When we say, what do we mean by silence? Well, basically what we mean is silence. But at the very root, Silence would be defined as this voluntary and temporarily eliminating as much of the noise as possible. The noise that comes out of us and then the noise that comes out at us. Both the audible noise and the silent digital noise. The noise that comes out of us, the noise that comes at us. And, and, but whether that's from people or media or, or our phones or our tablets, it's this eliminating the noise coming out of us and eliminating as much of the noise as we can that's coming at us, both the audible noise and the digital noise, for the purpose of freeing up space in our lives to experience God and to hear his voice. And really, solitude is similar. And these things many times are connected. Solitude would be this idea of withdrawing away privately, even either for a few minutes, a few times through the day, or, or up to a period of days, both in a physical and a digital sense for the purpose of engaging with God. And so what we have this experience is that, is that like even when we're alone, that many times we're not really alone. And we're alone with our technology, and then you, you have this thought, you're like, oh, you're, you're trying to read your Bible, or you're, and you're trying to have a moment of, of solitude, a moment of silence, but your technology's connected, and someone texts you, and then you're like, oh, well, that, that's, this could be super important, and then you look at it, and it wasn't that important, but now you, you have your phone in your hand, then you remember that email you didn't reply to, and then you go on your phone, you reply to that email, and on that email, you saw the word cat, and then you're like, oh, there, I heard there's this really great cat video on YouTube. And then six hours later, you're like, oh, wow. There went my, the thing is, even when we're alone, we're not alone. 
And so this, this thing of solitude, it's saying I'm going to withdraw privately away from, from people and distractions and, and, and if, if possible, technology for the purpose of creating space in my life to experience God and to hear his voice. See, here's the thing. Jesus knew that he needed time alone with the Father. And if Jesus prioritized time alone with the Father, if he knew he needed it, then we definitely need it. We see this through this pattern throughout Jesus' life, both in the everyday moments and then also at key moments in his life. Right after Jesus gets baptized, kicking off his ministry, he withdraws from, for, for, away from everybody for 40 days before he chooses his disciples. It comes out of one of these moments of solitude. When his friend John the Baptist, his cousin, dies, he withdraws to solitude. We see before he would go to the cross, he tells his disciples, hey, you guys wait over, over here. I'm gonna go over here by myself with the Father. Jesus, we see, is a regular pattern of his life, and then especially in these key moments, this solitude thing was a big part of his life, and if Jesus needed it, then, I, then we definitely need it. But here's the thing. It was hard for Jesus too. Let me show this to you. Mark 1, 35, it says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. So Jesus gets up 4.30 in the morning. He's like, hey, I'm going to leave before anyone else is up. I'm going to get some time, just me and the Father. I need to be by myself a little bit. And then, he, he says, says, and then it says, Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. And I think Jesus is like, Exactly. That's why I didn't tell you guys where I was going, but you found me now. And we see this over and over and over again. We see in, in Mark 3, 7, it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples for, to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edemia, and the regions across the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. It's like Jesus is kind of many times just trying to get some time by himself. We see it again, Mark 6, 30. It says, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. Have those days in your life where you're in such a hurry. Like you're just eating while you're doing whatever else it is you're doing. You're not really like taking time to like even enjoy a meal. That's the kind of day they're having. Jesus says to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. I really believe that that word that Jesus says to those disciples, I believe some of you, that, that I believe it's a word for all of us, but some of you, I believe that's probably exactly what Jesus is saying to you today, where he says to these disciples, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Do you ever have that moment where you're just like trying to get away from all the people in your life and you just can't? I mean, not to be super weird, but I think as, as moms and dads, sometimes we ever like have that moment where like you're in the bathroom way longer than you gotta be. Just because it's your only chance to get away from all the kids. And then the kids come in and start beating on the bathroom door and you're like, I should have put an electric fence around my bedroom. 
That moment where you just need some time by yourself and it just feels like it's really hard to get. That's the kind of day Jesus is having here. He's like, hey guys, let's get in this boat. Let's go across the lake to get away from these people. But then the people, they run around the lake and meet Jesus there. He, it's the thing is, this silence and solitude, it was a priority for Jesus, but it was also, also difficult for Jesus. Now, it's difficult for us, mostly for different reasons. We, we struggle, Jesus wasn't struggling because of, of technology the way we do, uh, uh, clearly. But so our reasons, uh, we, we have these external forces that make it really hard for us to practice this silence and solitude, for us to be able to slow down and eliminate distractions. We, we, we have these external forces coming at us, but what's happened is those external forces have so conditioned us that when we even get those moments, we don't even know what to do with them. So the thing is, if you're here today and you're like over 35, you remember what real boredom was like. Like, I'll be driving my kids on a road trip, and they're back there with their iPads and watching a movie on the, the van screen and this and that and talking about how they're bored, and, and there's like something that wells up in me where I want to go on a rant about how they don't even know boredom, you know? And, it, and then you're like, I remember being a kid, and like, there was nothing doing that car. You could try to read, but then you get car sick, and you're just like in there, bored. And then you start thinking these deep thoughts. But like now people, we don't, we don't even know what it's like just to be alone for a few minutes. There was a guy that did this study, this guy, Timothy Wilson, University of Virginia, writes this article in The Atlantic. And so what he does, he does a series of experiments where people are, are asked to just sit alone doing nothing but be alone with their thoughts for six to 15 minutes. In the first experiments, 58% of the people said it was more than somewhat difficult to do. Some of the experiments were done in a controlled environment. Some of them were done where people could do it at home. The people that, that were at home, 32% admitted, after a few minutes, I went and got my phone. They just couldn't do it. They were like, oh, this little alone thing for six to 15 minutes without anything to do. I didn't know what to do, so I just I, I cheated. They just admitted it. But get this. On one of these experiments, they actually uh, had people experience an electric shock that most people regarded, they said, that shock was painful. In fact, I'd be willing to pay money not to experience that shock again. But then what they saw is this. Though they had felt it before, knew it was unpleasant, said they'd be willing to pay for it not to happen. A quarter of the women and two-thirds of the male subjects voluntarily began shocking themselves versus just sitting alone in their boredom. In fact, one guy shocked himself 100 times. It's like, I could sit here alone with nothing to do, or I could just begin to electrocute myself. That's how bad we are at this. And, and, and so this was a, a clear priority for Jesus, but Jesus had to be intentional about it. It was difficult for him, different reasons than it's difficult for us. But this, this silence and solitude, these are these steps we can take to begin to combat the over-busyness and over-distraction that, that, that does war against our souls. See, silence and solitude, eliminate the noise so I can hear God's voice. Classic verse on this topic, Psalm 46.10 says, be still, like slow down, 
Slow down physically. Slow down all those thoughts racing in your head. Slow down all the stuff coming at you, all the distractions. Be still and know that I am God. The silence and solitude, it's it's this tool to combat the hurry and the distraction. I like how John Ortberg says it. He says, wise followers of Christ have always understood solitude to be the foundational practice. We used to call it a quiet time. You still can't. Jesus engaged in it frequently. But what makes it so important? Solitude is the one place where we gain freedom from the forces of society that otherwise relentlessly mold us. See, whether we realize it or not, all the things around us, the people and the media and the technology, all of those things are affecting us. They are shaping us, molding us. You can even use the word discipling us to something. And so when I step away and I say, I'm going to quiet the noise that comes out of me and the noise that comes at me, both the audible and the digital noise, I'm going to quiet the noise, be by myself, create some space for, for me to experience God and to hear his voice. What I'm doing is I'm declaring freedom against all of those forces of society that would come and desire to shape me. In 1801, at age 30, Beethoven complained about his diminishing hearing. He said, from a distance, I do not hear the high notes, high notes, wow, high notes of the instruments and the singer's voices. Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks notes that Beethoven raged against his decline. To be able to hear his own playing, he banged on pianos so forcefully that he often left them wrecked. By the age of 45, he was completely deaf, maybe because he was playing the piano so loud. He considered suicide, but was held back only by the force of, quote, moral rectitude. Cut off from the world of sound around him, at times he held a pencil in his mouth against his piano soundboard to feel the harmony of his chords. However, Beethoven, get this, produced the best music of his career culminating in his incomparable Ninth Symphony, a composition so daringly new that it reinvented classical music altogether. The Harvard professor Arthur Brooks said this way. He said, it seems a mystery that Beethoven became more original and brilliant as a composer in inverse proportion to his ability to hear. I love this line. Deafness freed Beethoven as a composer. Why? Because he no longer had, get this, society's soundtrack in his ears. There's this thing when I say, I'm going to withdraw. Whether it's a few minutes, a few times a day, whether it's longer periods of time, that that this, I'm going to withdraw and I'm going to put out all of those external voices. I'm going to quiet what's coming out of me, what's going on inside me, what's coming at me. I'm going to be by myself for the purpose of creating some space, what we do, some space in in my heart to experience God, to hear his voice. What I'm doing at that moment is I'm freeing myself from the soundtrack that society would play in my mind, and I'm hearing God's sound soundtrack for my life. Here's the last thing. Similar to, to silence and solitude, this other practice that slows us down, frees us from distraction, is this practice of Sabbath. Sabbath is the gift that brings rest, refreshment, and focus. 
I think it's one of those things that maybe a lot of times we maybe underestimate or misunderstand. Maybe you think Sabbath is like, hey, if it's convenient, I'll go to church for a couple hours, and, and hey, that's for sure a, a good first step, but it's Sabbath at its root is really set aside, set, setting aside this a 24-hour period for the purpose of slowing down and worshiping, resting, and connecting to God, and there's these things, when we, when we do this, this bold move of this 24-hour period where I'm gonna slow down, I'm gonna worship, I'm gonna rest, I'm gonna do things that are refreshing and, and, and fuel me up, and, and a few things happen. One, it's a declaration of gratitude to God for two things. One, it's a declaration of gratitude for creation. We see this when, when Sabbath was, was first commanded to us, the Old Testament, it's really tied to creation. We see it in Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Don't do any work, you or anybody else. And then he tells us why. It's this creation narrative. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so there's this aspect where, where, we, where we set aside this day. We see it in creation. It reminds us of, of, of God's pattern in creation. But, but then when we see Sabbath talked about more in the book of Deuteronomy, there's this other, other element. It says, observe, your, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six, and then he tells us why, skipping down. He says, remember, instead of going creation narrative, now this is after they've been delivered out of Egypt. So now he goes with this salvation narrative. He says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So when I, when I set aside this 24-hour period for the purpose of worship and rest and refreshment and refocus, what I'm doing is I'm declaring gratitude to God both for creation and also salvation. Here's the next thing I'm doing. When I do that, I'm declaring my position of need. I'm saying, God, I need you. God, I need you to refresh me and to restore me. We see this story where Jesus and his disciples, it's the Sabbath day. The religious elites were always trying to catch Jesus doing something wrong on the Sabbath day. And so they're in this field and they're having a, they begin picking some food and eating it. They begin to give Jesus a hard time. And then Jesus says this, remember, Sabbath is for man not man for the Sabbath. What Jesus is saying is, is the reason that that Sabbath exists is because we need it. It's because we need this, these moments of rest and refreshment and res restoration. And so when I, when I set aside a day for a Sabbath, I'm saying, God, I need you. When I set aside a day for a Sabbath, I'm saying, God, you're my priority. See, when, when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you, you say, well, how do I seek first? A great way to seek first is, is to put God first in that area of your life. And so by giving God the beginning of the week, this first day of the week, what I'm saying is, God, you're my priority. I'm putting you first as I begin this week. You're my priority. But I'm also saying, God, I trust you. See, some of you, when you hear this idea of 24-hour period dedicated to worship and rest and restoration and refreshment, you say, well, there's, I, could, I don't have enough time. I couldn't get all this done. But really, there's this way in which the Sabbath is a similar principle to the principle of the tithe. See, the principle of the tithe is I'm saying, God, you're my priority, 
But in doing so, I'm saying, God, I believe that, that and Scripture teaches that, God, you can do more with 90% of my money than I can do with 100%. And the same is true with this principle of the Sabbath. When we do it, I'm declaring my trust in God, saying that, that God, I believe that, that you can accomplish more with six days than I can with seven. It's the same principle. And so when I, when I have this Sabbath, this 24-hour period for the purpose of worship and rest, refreshment, restoration, what I'm saying is, God, I trust you. And so I'm, a part of me placing you as my priority, I'm declaring that you can do more with six days than I can do with seven. There's also this sense where it's a declaration of resistance, where I say, by, 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 by living differently in this way, what I'm saying is I'm, I, I'm, I'm I'm declaring war or, or, or separation, shall we say, fr from the predominant culture, the kingdom in which we live. I'm saying I'm not a part of this kingdom, which is, is, is based on hurry, busyness, consumerism, and, and, and living for self. It's saying I am a part of a different kingdom with a different king, and so I'm living life differently. Thing is, why do we have Sabbath? I believe it is this thing of priority to God, trust in Him, but it really is because we need this gift. There's been so much data that's been shown that, that people that live life this way, where they really do dedicate a 24-hour period for worship, rest, restoration, and refreshment, that, that life goes better. There, there's less, less health issues, less anxiety. In fact, there's one denomination that is like super hardcore uh, about this 24-hour period, and, and it's more than just a kind of a couple hours to begin the day. It's really like this big deal. And what they found is people that are part of that group, now they probably drink less and eat a little better too, but they've been found to live on average 10 years longer, which is fascinating because if someone lives around 70 years and one out of seven of those days they've dedicated to rest, refreshment, restoration, and worship, it's as if all of, every one of those days comes back to them with a longer life. It's as if God knew we needed this. So I wanna encourage you, think deeply about this issue, that the things that, that create the greatest risk to our souls, the greatest risk to our relationships with our friends and our family and ultimately our relationship with God are, are these issues of hurry and distraction. And, and give some thought and prayer to what would it look like for you to place a greater priority on practices that are specifically for the purpose of you slowing down, eliminating the noise, creating some space so that you might experience God's activity and hear his voice in a deeper way. Let me pray for you. Maybe even in the quietness of your heart, you might even just tell God what he already knows, which is this truth that, that you need help in this area. We all do. And maybe for you, it maybe hurry is the bigger thing, or maybe for you, distraction's the bigger thing, or maybe, maybe they both tie for first place. But maybe just tell the Lord, just say, God, I, I really need help. I really need help to slow down and free myself from distractions that I might experience 
the life that you have for me and the life with you and experiencing you in a deeper way. So Father, I pray that you'd help us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see the need to slow down, eliminate distractions, practice habits that help us to do that. Help us to free up space in our lives to experience you. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Life Church Reno podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages like this, and we'll see you soon.